Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I'm so honored to be joined by Rakesh Ramachandran, who is a co-founder and CEO of Kubrick's which is an enterprise blockchain platform. Rakesh is also a long-time listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, and we've been in touch with each other over the last number of years, and I finally got to speak to one another, and I'd love to share the conversation we've had recently with you. In this episode, Rakesh talks to us about crypto economics, and of how his knowledge of Austrian economics helped create his blockchain company, Kubrix. We also discuss what blockchain is and some of the current problems that underline this type of technology and how Rakesh aims to solve some of those problems. We dive a little bit into cryptocurrency as well as India and some books that he's recommended, including some philosophical books and some of the philosophical teachings that have their roots in India. You can check out all the resources, books and links mentioned in this episode over on the show notes page at economicrockstar.com forward slash Rakesh, R-A-K-E-S-H. And again, I'd love if you could continue to support the podcast and if you haven't done so already, why not subscribe to Economic Rockstar on Apple Podcasts or any other platform in which you prefer to listen to the podcast. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast or have your name featured in any future episode, why not check out patreon.com forward slash Economic Rockstar to learn more. Thanks for listening and enjoy this a conversation with Rakesh Ramachandran. So some of the things recently that the Bitcoin is coming down, it's actually getting more stable if you look at it. Lesser people are you know, speculating on it, right? So lesser is the speculation, there is a more stability. More stability means there is an incentive for people to start using it as a real transaction currency. So we have a popular saying in India. In US, for every 10 investors, there is one startup. And in India, for every one investor, there are 10 startups. Hello, Rakesh. Hi, Frank. How are you? Is it clear for you? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, it's good on this side. Anyway, Rakesh. I'm doing good. It's been a long time since we have interacted. <laughs> yes, it's been quite a while. Um, I don't know much about blockchain. Okay. And uh, I know you've been in touch recently. Well, when I say recently, quite a while back, saying that you were setting up a blockchain company. Um, right. I was all kind of ears because of the attention it's got in the over time in the media has heightened everybody's awareness of that blockchain exists whether we know it or not what it is and we associate it with cryptocurrencies but it's more to do with that and i'd love to be able to talk about that and your new company as well your startup Kubrix. sure sure and by the way sorry welcome to the podcast rakesh Okay, I wasn't aware that it will be a podcast, but still. Oh, yeah, you're on it, yeah. Great. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, really amazing for me to be here and your podcast because I remember when I started, uh, you know, it was just an idea as a company. And I think when I was speaking to you, I was supposed to be going to a B school, not to be a part of a startup, I guess. Yeah. And that was it. You were one of the earliest, earlier listeners to the podcast when it was first released. And you, you got in touch with me by email telling me that you're interested in economics and you're considering going into study that type of that our discipline. Right, right. And I think the studies that I made, I think especially the Austrian school, uh, which I think you had a podcast long time back, uh, it kind of helped in the way to understand especially the blockchain economics. Yeah. 
because we think blockchain is a technology i think it is actually an economics which is getting played now and how did that link up with your austrian is in terms of decentralized currency if you look at the, the way it doesn't have any type of government supporting a currency and using blockchain to use that as a platform to have a universal currency that is decentralized yes so if you look at the austrian school the austrian school has been very vocal about uh, having the government having a very least role in the economics because i think it has been one of the more libertarian views of economics that we had in the past the classical economics is where you know interest rate you know the where the there is a central organization like a government trying to influence a lot of decision making whereas if you look at the austrian it's a bit more liberal that way and private individual and their aspirations are more important now if you look at blockchain i think the austrian school is something which will fit fit more or less perfectly into the blockchain theme but from what i understand economics is fundamentally about one principle which is limited supply mm. you know things are limited in life right yes and if you look at blockchain especially bitcoin at least cryptocurrencies they are limited in supply you cannot create them as you wish it is limited and that's because of whatever was created first can only be mined and there's a limited supply unlike where a fiat currency could be in, uh, uh, printed more money could be printed and increase the supply R- of that right right so that is i think that is a very fundamental at least in the cryptocurrency that's a very fundamental view we need to have it is works exactly like economics and game theory limited supply and there is demand more than the supply and that is where how the price even comes into the picture because of the supply and demand and we we actually saw that play out quite recently with cryptocurrencies yes now what has not happened is uh, this cryptocurrency is getting a real value right you produce a real value in economics only when you are able to use it for a particular transaction there is some utility the utilitarian theory of economics helps us in that now that is something which i think will will slowly come in and as soon as that utility gets established of bitcoin or any of the cryptocurrencies the price stability is what will happen you reckon that that will happen once the market matures and more people begin to use it as more products are available to purchase through these cr- cryptocurrencies and prices may somewhat stabilize yes uh, but there are two challenges to that particular problem as i see it one is that in today's cryptocurrency there is a lot of volatility so when there is a volatility you cannot have commercial transactions right because uh, how does the buyer and the seller agree upon certain value of the bitcoin mm. you know today i say you purchase a pizza for one bitcoin the moment the transaction is done by the time it is done it's like the value has changed bitcoin the volatility is a problem there so some of the things recently that the bitcoin is coming down it's actually getting more stable if you look at it lesser people are you know speculating on it right mm. so lesser is the speculation there is a more stability more stability means there is an incentive for people to start using it as a real transaction currency now the other problem is a pure technology problem there is a fragmentation that has happened in the cryptocurrency world although we you know from idea it shouldn't have happened ideal world but that is what has happened in reality 
because of this fragmentation, if you observe Bitcoin, there are three types of Bitcoins. Mm. Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Classic, and of course the new one. So what I see is that the technology challenge here in terms of scalability, at least for Bitcoin, it has been demonstrated. Today, one transaction takes one hour. So the moment that is solved as well, I think scalability will come in. And that is where we will see a lot of uh, changes and the prices will stabilize, more transactions, utilitarian value will come in. And I do not think that it would be Bitcoin only. There would be at least two to three more currencies, which would really be the uh, real currencies, uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, right now, there are 1,500, but it will come to at least three or four in the future. You're in Bangalore now in India, aren't you, Rakesh? Yes. When I first started this podcast, one of the first mm-hmm. guests that I've had on it was Naomi Brockwell back in episode number nine. And she goes by the name Bitcoin Girl. And we spoke about Bitcoin. I think this was back in yeah December 2014. And in that, it was more talking about Bitcoin the way you opened up this conversation from an Austrian school of thinking in that it allows people to make transactions which are, I suppose, private. Also, mm-hmm. it allows people to not rely on, obviously, inflation is an impact in that you could look at uh, the volatility, but also that it, there's no, it's a decentralized currency. And the conversation went in a way that mm-hmm. we... We talked about how Bitcoin could be useful for the unbanked population. When there's a large population where that, do, that does not have access to banking facilities or who cannot get uh, make transactions, technology along with Bitcoin has allowed people in the likes of Africa, some parts of Africa, to make those transactions possible and to open up in a way, a banking system to a larger population who would not, who would otherwise not be able to avail of it. And would you think in India, where there is also a large population and perhaps a large unbanked population, would you think people in India were more agreeable to accepting Bitcoin or be more interested in taking Bitcoin on as a form of currency in the earlier days? Yes, I think if you look at uh, there was a time when almost uh, 10% of the worldwide transactions of Bitcoin happened in India. Uh, there's just uh, a lot of sorry. There was just a lot of background noise there, Rakesh. If you don't mind, uh, uh, let me. Yeah, let me just switch it over. I'll get on the phone. The phone will be a bit better. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, is it better? Can hear you clearly. All right, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so, um, coming to your question, in India, if Bitcoin had around worldwide Bitcoin. There was ten percent of the Bitcoin running through India transactions. That's quite a lot. That's quite a lot of number, if you see. So what I see is that in the in the near future, although you know the the main problem, at least from India, is Indian government fears Bitcoin. Okay, and because, is this Prime Minister Modi, or was this the the government in general before? Uh, I wouldn't say it is the government. It is the bureaucracy part of the government okay. which is fearing Bitcoin. Okay, because India has a very tight foreign currency control. We call it as a FEMA, Foreign Exchange Management Act. And it, you know, it has evolved to actually from the Britishers, the colonizers. That is how that entire team of schemes have come up. It's a legacy. Mm. Now, what has happened is through Bitcoin, because government doesn't have any control, 
there's a huge problem for them when they look at it from a foreign exchange uh, manipulation way and and of course there are fears about terrorism funding etc but i think it happens even with the traditional fiat currency yes so it is it is not a problem of bitcoin or anything it's just you know if people want to do illegal stuff they will find ways whether it's a bitcoin a fiat currency or anything now the way i understand the problem is the government fears it's fear of of every political or a bureaucracy that bitcoin will kind of get, you know take away the power from them now ideally the government should have regularized they should have established regulations like what has happened in south korea japan especially and what is also now happening in us instead of instead of that what they have recently announced this month was no bank in india is allowed to do currency conversion through bitcoin so if you have bitcoin you cannot sell it to any any exchange of india you can't just transact in the economy yeah i can understand why they might do that if they actually fear the currency and protect their own right and they are also it's quite interesting they have come up with thinking with a model that they will develop their own currency yes <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of very and i'm kind of thinking that means the government always have to maintain 51% of the mining <laughs> yes that's true and the thing is other governments are looking at that like even a different type of government in venezuela hugo chavez is uh, coming up with his own um i think is something to do, has a sound like petrol or something like that uh, his own currency petronas or they're creating their own right. currencies cryptocurrencies and i right. i think that's even a lot of the financial sector some of the banks looking into blockchain as well whether it's to do with creating their own currency or for security and the government are probably looking at that in form of the indian government are probably looking at that in the form of trying to m- maybe compete with bitcoin so they don't lose their own the value or the use of their own currency but also to have some kind of security in terms of the transactions and account for those transactions and ledgers that they may have created right but at the end of the day if we are just replacing fiat currency with a you know the government issued currency cryptocurrency i think the value is getting lost of blockchain okay. uh, the real value of blockchain came because the public is also involved mm-hmm. right in the currency so i think at some point of time the governments who are trying to establish their own cryptocurrency will have to have a mining where there is a public participation as well it just can't be a one player monopoly kind of a business there yeah and that's what some of the criticism comes from or is directed toward creators of other kind of currencies like ICOs and mm-hmm. you know because they have created a a currency put up an ICO and pretty much have monopolized and become quite wealthy with with some of these currencies that don't have any real value there are over right. there are over about 200 cryptocurrencies out there that and a lot of them have kind of failed miserably uh yes i i completely agree with you even while we uh, we at cubebricks do the solution designing for our clients right on our on our platform we actually look at something called as crypto economics crypto economics yes okay. so the, we create an economic model where whatever icos are done through our platform or whatever use cases we are building the currency is tied to a real utility there has to be something that you can do with that currency 
this is not just for speculation you know you don't buy it just because it's going to come up or come go low mm. you are buying it because there has to be at least some part of the real users in the platform and uh, your company cubrix uh, rakesh mm-hmm. you obviously identified some problems that some of the cryptocurrencies have and i think you refer to one of those whereby bitcoin would take about an hour to do a transaction and i think at times it takes a lot longer it could even be up to 24 hours for a transaction to take place and also the perhaps the the costs of a transaction has gone up quite a bit have you identified any other problems that when you're working with your clients on an ico that they could try to remove some of those problems and improve the type of currency there is so one of the first problems that we identify it's a very it's a very delicate way to look at the things it's a different perspective so if you look at a public bitcoin that's incentive of holding a bitcoin was its anonymity yeah. whereas we what we do are only for private enterprises uh, we do not issue any public cur- cryptocurrency we create a network which enterprises can use now in that anonymity is no longer an incentive because it is already uh, what i would say the network knows who you are right mm-hmm. so but the value is now on the privacy what you do needs to be pri- you know kind of uh, encrypted or privatized but who you are is no longer a problem so that is what is the shift in a private network which is completely different from a public network public network anybody can buy anybody can join whereas we develop enterprise scale uh, blockchain implementation where people are known but the transactions that they do are very private so that is one thing where we have uh, used what we called as a quantum resistant encryption method uh, we do not use public private key model of bitcoins okay. we use a different way of doing that transaction that is one okay second we also help enterprises to have a user access control uh, user access control which is again an element of security you know similar to what you have in an organization managers supervisors employees etc so that you have a very tight degree of control over who can tra- actually do a transaction in blockchain third we think uh, this is something which we are we are trying to solve we haven't yet solved we think at the end of the day private or whether it's public will develop into network of networks just like the internet internet just started as a private network within united states it, it had grown now it's like a global network network of networks mm-hmm. now in that scenario what you need is different networks being able to communicate with each other we call it as interoperability we are working very hard towards it hopefully we should be able to achieve that level of uh, technology advancement where you could have multiple flavors of blockchain being able to talk to each other okay is this to do i i, I don't know i'm not a into the technology and if you asked me to describe blockchain i would make a very bad uh, attempt at uh, explaining it even though i have some interest in specific interest in some of the coins that are out there mm-hmm. but regarding um the networks having all the networks talk to each other at a very basic level and excused way this is how i might see it and it, it could be wrong just say you know your games consoles the way you have the xbox and the playstation right and if i played on an xbox 
and but, I was to play it online, I can only play certain games with other Xbox users. But if I had a friend who was on the PlayStation and I wanted to play with that person online, I would have to buy a PlayStation or that person would have to buy an Xbox because they don't cross-platform. We can't do cross-platform gaming. So would the network problem be something similar whereby if I wanted to do transactions in, say, Litecoin, Mm -hmm. uh, someone who, I don't know, whatever uh, platform or if they might not want to receive Litecoin, they might want to receive, say, Ethereum. Is that the, where the problem might lie in terms of matching up? Yes, but uh, you, there's only one difference. That is, what you talked about was the ability to network in terms of cryptocurrencies, right? Mm-hmm. That is one level more up because every cryptocurrency is ultimately a protocol or an application of blockchain. Mm-hmm. I'm here but one level below where I'm saying that you could have, you need to have network of networks where different blockchains can talk to each other. Okay. Whether it will evolve into different cryptocurrencies being able to talk to each other is again a big technology problem. But I think for the world to adopt blockchain or even cryptocurrencies, this is like must. If you don't have cross-platform functionality, you're not go- going to scale in, uh, in terms of usability. I, I didn't realize there was kind of different networks or different blockchains and that they're kind of excluded other use, users of other currencies from making transactions or uh, using a, a blockchain. Um, so is it just that it's being privatized and kept for a particular group? Or even if you want to explain what a blockchain is, Rakesh, sorry for me to understand <laughs> exactly uh, where we're going. Sure. Uh, I think uh, I think it's it's also not uh, because of the technology. It's also due to the hype that we always compare cryptocurrency with the blockchain. Okay. Now, blockchain is purely a database. It is as simple as that. It is a Merkle tree database. Now, what has happened is Bitcoin is an implementation over that database. You know, blockchain is simply the ledger. It doesn't know whether it's a Bitcoin or a Litecoin or any of that. It just knows it contains storing of data, calculating the hash, and a consensus mechanism. This is all simple as it is. What has happened is every cryptocurrency is an application of blockchain in a particular scenario or a protocol to get the coins. Now, if it's a private group, they need not have a cryptocurrency. It's not essential for them to have a cryptocurrency to use blockchain. Yes. They can just use it as a ledger, a database, mm. which is distributed consensus. So we at Kubrick's are focused only on that part because uh, cryptocurrency world is so uh, fragmented, very diversified. You know, it's very hard for a startup to focus. But so we are directly only looking at that private blockchain part of it. And this is quite useful for companies who want to store yes. their data because what we're worried about, and again, going back to your readings of Austrian economics and mm-hmm. also, again, in that podcast episode with Naomi Brockwell where I discussed or Naomi told me about a lot of the data, private data uh, that JP Morgan had was hacked by outsiders and a lot of people's private information was gathered, maybe their banking details. So from blockchain perspective a company like jp morgan or other companies even facebook story now 
may use blockchain or should use blockchain in order to help create a, a security around that private information. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we at Kubricks are working on that. You might have heard about a European regulation called uh, GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. So we at Kubricks are going to roll out a fantastic use case where GDPR is done over a blockchain network. So this is directly targeted over companies where they are storing user data and they could be compliant with something like a GDPR. So the where the user also has a certain degree of control over his data. Okay. And you, you referred earlier on about identifying a number of problems, uh, three of them. Does that kind of clarify or does that overcome the first two problems where you actually use the blockchain in order to help create a security over people's private information? Yes, yes, it is very important because when we started our core platform, having that sort of a security uh, solution was very important in you know coming up to this private data because if we are not able to provide that security, we wouldn't be able to build such a solution as well. So it's all coming together, although we never thought it will come together. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic, especially at the early adoption phase. It's a great move to actually make and perhaps a better move than going to college and studying economics where you can actually do the startup and create what you call crypto economics. Right. And I'm very fascinated about it. The first use case, uh, I'm not authorized to you know, give you the client's name, but I can just briefly, we are working on something to solve the H-1B visa compliance problem. What's the HP-1 visa? Yes, of the United States. So we are trying to help uh, people on their compliance efforts. Uh, it is a private blockchain, but you, it will help people to solve that particular problem as well. I'm not familiar with that visa now. So. Okay, so once you get a H-1B visa, a worker visa it is, okay. uh, immigrant visa as well, I think. Once you get that, you once you reach United States, you're supposed to be compliant with certain regulations. Not only you, your employer, and whoever is auditing the employer books has also to certify it. Your travel agents could be involved in that. So it's a network, actually. It's an ecosystem which is there. And we are trying to roll out. And all these days, the data was segregated, uh, isolated, and also most of them in paper formats. So we are, what we are trying to do is we are trying to use a technology like blockchain to solve that and uh, help people achieve the compliance. Rakesh, you know, uh, why is a blockchain is so secure? Is it because the, a lot of the information that's stored is fragmented and dispersed throughout this, these networks? And then when you retrieve the information that you require, the and if you have, I know you said you have more than a public and a private keys, you do, you use something else. But once those keys are put in, the security questions or, or passwords are used, you can actually go source all the defragmented pieces of information and bring it together again. Or is that how it works? Okay. So blockchain, as I said, uh, involves one is a Merkle tree. It's basically a data structure. I mean, structuring how it is stored in the database. And the second important factor we call this immutability. It's a very important word. There is a difference between security and immutability. What is immutable means is that every transaction is tracked. Mm -hmm. So 
and it pre- basically prevents a problem in economics called as double spending. Let's say you have $100, you cannot spend twice. You can only spend $100, right? Mm. So that's what is called as a double spending problem in economics, which is essentially solved by blockchain. So it's a, it's a chain of blocks. Every block that is created now is linked to its previous block. So unless if you want to change even one particular part of the block, you will have to change the entire chain. So it gives you an auditability and a traceability. That is what it gives. It, you know, when you say secure, that's what it means, yeah. what is actually there. It is not that it protects you from phishing attack or a hacking attack. Mm. You know, if you're, if you're accessing a blockchain through a browser and, uh, if someone else comes to that computer is, and is able to emulate the browser, he will still get your data. That is not what blockchain will prevent. Mm. But what blockchain will tell you is that this person access the data. The auditability comes in. So basically, the ownership is getting established. And I think that brings a lot of transparency in the system. When you refer to crypto economics earlier on, Mm -hmm. it sounds like a a large area, which I'm sure it is. How can we relate some, say, theories or our understanding of economics and link it into crypto economics? Or is this a whole new field and we have to build on it in, based on what we know now and what we experience in the future? Or can we apply the same similar thinking to and apply some of the... Like, for example, if someone was to work on a paper on crypto economics or was to study something on crypto economics, could they relate to any field or any area in the current teachings of economics to use as a way of explaining or kind of moving in that particular direction? I think uh, crypto economics is essentially using whatever is traditional economic methods or even the new school economics like behavioral economics. It is, it is, in a way it is different is because in traditional economics, uh, building models required greater sophistication, right? It was not very easy to achieve it. With the whole digitization, applying, checking your analyzing and checking your results is much more easier. In the digitized world. Now, coming to crypto economics, I think two, some of the theories which are really going to impact that field, one would be how does supply demand create pricing mm. or how does pricing influences the other part? What happens when there is a limited supply, which is a fundamental premise of economic theories? Game theory in which how does it impact economics is going to be really useful in crypto economics. I am also sure that some part of the behavioral economics is also going to uh, influence crypto economics. And what I see is that in crypto economics, you will have different modeling, economic modeling being done. And you would be able to arrive and apply these models and you will be able to come back with the results as well. Mm. So there is also a field of econometrics uh, association here. There was another thing, when you were talking about the networks, matching up the networks for one another, that there currently is something that you're working on. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went a little bit ahead in terms of trying to interpret um, my understanding of it before you actually told me you're you're working on, that's too much of a problem where we're trying to match up actual currencies. But is there, in economics, there's a, a saying, 
called Double Coincidence of Once, and hence we created fiat currency in order to avoid that problem of double coincidence, whereby we had that problem with the bartering system. Is that mm-hmm. Does that exist in the cryptocurrency world today, in that if I wanted to buy something from or exchange something for to somebody else or swap coins, and that's per se, if I have Bitcoin cash, but the other person doesn't want the cash, they want actual Bitcoin, the classic Bitcoin. We'll have to convert that into either a fiat currency for the transaction to occur. Or if you want to stay on the network, I have to maybe convert that into Bitcoin in order for the transaction to take place. Is Does that problem still exist today then? And do we use kind of like the blockchain and converting from one currency to the other to solve those problems, which can be expensive if you look at the transaction costs. I think you are very spot on. Uh, I think with the kind, with the so many cryptocurrencies, this is going to be a problem because not everyone agrees to use the same cryptocurrency, right? In the real world, we have even fiat currencies. We have at least dollars, Indian rupees there. Every country has their own currency. And if imagine the, in a real world, the dollars cannot be converted to Indian rupee, it'll be a problem. Mm. I think the similar is where the cryptocurrency market is. I think some of those problems were solved by the exchanges, mm. uh, the institutional mechanism. I call this the exchanges were solving it. But uh, at least from what Kubrick's is trying to look at is going one more step below, not at the cryptocurrency level, but at the blockchain level itself, can this sort of a exchange of information can be achieved. Yeah. And that's important because if you're using one particular network and you want to change information to another network, that's the problem that exists at the moment that you're solving, is it? And that you want to have these networks to somewhat integrate with one another so that information can be exchanged? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, And I'll be very honest, this is not a very easy technology problem to solve because, you know, you're dealing with a lot of diverse of architectures here every blockchain is kind of a little bit different so there is a lot of uh, uh, research and thought process which is going on Uh, we think we should be able to achieve some degree of uh, stability in our architecture and be able to come up with it but it's going to take at least uh, two to three quarters before we could do that and release it to the public okay do you mind me asking Rakesh what does Kubrick mean because with acronyms, I've heard of the acronym BRIC when it refers to Brazil, Russia, India, and China. That has nothing to do with the name of your company, does it? Kubricks. In the market that you actually <laughs> serve, I was thinking is Q to do with Qatar and, you know, so. So uh, Q was for quantum because uh, the company's inspiration was a quantum, uh, you know, enabled or resistant encryption. So Q came from that. B is blockchain, and, uh, I take it. <laughs> Yeah, so bricks was like the blockchain, bricks, you know, like the blocks. And also it and it also has to do with way how our team was, you know, when our team was first created, it's very unusual for a startup. We were a hundred person virtual team. Wow. And we covered three continents. US, uh, my co founder was at that time in Dubai and I was in Bangalore, India. And we had we had the company created in U.S. So and we had even acquisition offers. So we had a joke in the company that, you know, we never met the founders and we might as well sell the company and still never met. That is amazing, isn't it? 
the magic of technology. Yes, yes, that's kind of how. But we had amazing communication tools to help us bridge the gap of personal interaction. And I think now it is solved to a certain degree. You know, we had founders meeting. Uh, for example, my co-founder is now with me in Bangalore, working with me very hard uh, in setting up things. And I still have one of my co-founder in US. So we have a we are a company. We are open twenty four hours uh, due to our time zone differences. Yeah. So if I couldn't have spoke to you at this time, maybe I could have spoken to your colleague in the US if the morning time suited better. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So uh, it's an amazing way it has formed. I never thought this this is how it will be. Rakesh, what's life like in Bangalore? Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, Talent-wise, I see amazing people to work with in India. But I think uh, there is a lot of, uh, although there has been a lot of, uh, recently a lot of encouragement for entrepreneurship in India, but this is not enough. It is nothing compared to what we have in US or any country like Canada or in the European countries. Uh, India needs to do a lot uh, especially on the, you know, removing some of the kind of uh, red tapes that we have to run a company. That's a bit hard still in India. I follow the Economic Times on Facebook. And I've noticed over the last number of years, it seems a lot more positive, whether it's to do with Prime Minister Modi, since he began office and his kind of policies to improve the economy or grow the economy even more. And would you find that yourself, would you find that in your own city, that Bangalore or maybe perhaps India itself are looking at those positive effects, even though the, the growth rate may not be as, as high as expected? Yes, uh, I think I should be very frank. It is due to a person like Prime Minister Modi being in India that I was able to at least even have the confidence that I could do a startup. You know, I could have the confidence that I, I need not go to a college uh, for doing my business degree. I could do a startup. Uh, that was, in my generation, that was a big fear of doing a entrepreneurship, right? You did not have any supporting mechanism. Yeah. So I think, at large, the Indian government has been successful in creating that uh, sort of a confidence to start the business. Mm. But, not, but that is at a government level. You still need a lot of uh, you know, help in running the business. Starting a business is one thing. Running a business is entirely different as well. I think that is where we need a lot of further help. And it is not just the government and the policies. It is all, also to do with the mindset of people. It has to do with the way bureaucracy works. It has to do with how banks think about startups, how lenders, investors. Uh, there's a lot of work need, still needs to be done. If we compare to something like US. Yeah, it is a large population. I'm sure with the large population, it may be somewhat difficult to try to instill that confidence and perhaps break down the bureaucracy, as you mentioned. And what if that the bureaucracy is reduced and people's outlook like yourself actually changed, India could perhaps rapidly grow and its GDP per capita could grow quite significantly. Yes, absolutely. Uh, India is one of the, uh, you know, it has become one of the hottest uh, bed for startups world worldwide. And uh, what I see is that we have startups. There is amazing amount of competition among startups. So we have a popular saying in India. In U.S., for every 10 investors, there is one startup. 
and in india for every one investor there are 10 startups so that's kind of uh, interesting yeah the pool dynamic. the pool to choose from uh, is a lot greater in india yes yes uh, but what it requires is now a real policy framework for running the businesses a uh, lot of uh, re- you know uh, relaxation in the statutory as well as other things for these startups to get nurtured and i think what has to happen from the government is not just to help these startups to grow in india uh, for example a company like me we might have very less business in india or maybe none our entire business is uh, you know worldwide so that kind of enablement of policy if comes in i think indian companies will do very great in the worldwide stage rakesh when you were considering after i think you contacted me i think it might have been about 2000 end of 14 maybe around 2015 and i think as far as i can remember i don't know whether you're looking for advice as to go on and do some study mm-hmm. i don't know if that was the case but where were you what were you considering doing or where were you considering going i i would say i was just passionate about about economics i was uh, i i i just it's just by virtue of chance that uh, in my degree which i did through i know i, I never went to a college even I just did a de- degree through distance and I was economic I was introduced to macro and microeconomics I just had two small papers and just it just intrigued me as to how this entire model works how does economics works especially the limited supply you know limited resources which is the fundamental premise of economics and I started reading and reading all by myself and that's when I wanted to be in touch with and i was listening to podcast and i and I, I was really intrigued by the austrian school and that's when i wrote to you and you know getting more advice as to how i can still keep reading and understand this as a subject and i, I should say i've been a bit immature i've never been into a college or done it academically but i have been i think in one way i've been lucky because i was able to understand the fundamentals very clearly because i learned it on my own and i could see see it being applied in real world as well and now in the future, uh, as soon as my startup is stabilized, I think I might be able to go back to school and, you know, <laughs> meet some interesting people and still do complete, maybe do some work on things like crypto economics. Yeah, or you can actually create your own field in that and, uh, you know, you have a startup and you're applying, you're, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of data that you could actually work with. Right. Maybe maybe your time could be wasted. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying this as to put off going to college but your time could be wasted going to college whereby you can gather the knowledge by distance learning and keep building new companies and doing the world a good service yes uh, i mean uh, it's a i mean i do miss going back to a college in one way in life but i think uh, when i look now after doing this creating this entrepreneurship journey and uh, almost being a you know just at the age of 30 i've already got like you know, done a good company and it's still growing. I think uh, it's kind of satisfactory personally. But uh, yeah, a little bit more academics would be a little bit interesting as well. Rakesh, can I ask you a couple of questions that I typically ask mm-hmm. my guests? Do you have a book that you'd like to recommend or something that you enjoyed reading that you'd like to share with us? I think uh, there are two, three books which I would recommend. One of the book was uh, which really influenced me, at least philosophically. Now, this is something which helped me to keep the spirit, right? The perseverance going. 
that was of course the classical indian philosophy book uh, called as bhagavad gita that is one okay now coming to economics i read the uh, the keynes book the general theory of uh, employment if i'm right yes. the title is yeah. uh, that is one and also i think the first guy the alfred uh, the an inquiry into the wealth uh, how na- nations create wealth i think an inquiry that's the title of the book i remember okay i think for a classical economics students these are two great books and third i would recommend is uh, the th- uh, the book of mises okay one of the ultimate book that if anyone want to read would be uh, ludwig uh, wittgenstein's tractatus logico philosophicus that gives you an absolute base in logic and philosophy you're talking a lot about philosophy and we know india is a good source of this kind of deep classical philosophical thinking especially when it comes to mental well-being also and the practices. I asked a question, I'm going to ask you this question also um, soon, but a previous guest, when I asked, who would you like to meet if time travel was possible? And she mentioned mm-hmm. uh, Rabindranath Tagore. And I, I've i recently read his book, mm-hmm. Boyhood, Boyhood Days. I think it's a kind of a, a small autobiographical book on, written by Tagore. And I didn't realize the schools that he actually built based on his outlook and philosophical thinking of how children should be schooled. And I'm wondering if you came across, if you come from that side of the Indian schooling that Tagore has left behind. In a way, yes. Uh, I uh, Because I was a self-educated person, I had the liberty to study at least almost all the type of Indian philosophies. In my young, it's purely pure enthusiasm learned, uh, you know, based learning. Uh, so I was introduced into Vedanta, uh, different types in that, uh, even very esoteric and mystic philosophies like Tantra. And, uh, you know, I had an entire range of uh, <laughs> different types of philosophies. So this gives you a very wholesome perspective. I think I belong to a generation of India where we were not introduced due to our fathers or you know due to our customs traditions but we on our own started understanding more about india it's like we are kind of discovering our identity owned by our, by our own and i think this is the same thing is happening to a lot of uh, non resident indians or you know people who are who had a indian an- ancestry and living abroad they are kind of coming back to understand the roots of their civilization. Mm. And why do you think that might be? Is that just, Could that be because of independence? Uh, I think what has happened is that, uh, you know, India still runs a lot of legacy of its uh, British ruling, to be honest. Mm. Our schooling system is based on that. It rarely relates to its roots or able to put it in the right perspectives. So what has happened is if we need to know our roots, the only way is to get you get ourselves self-educated. I just want to add one more point. The entire focus of Indian education has been just employment generation for some time now. So there is no room for you know cultural or a philosophical background most of the time. Okay, because uh, you know people are on a. I don't want to generalize this, but in the Western world and or the Western economies or countries. A lot of people seem to turn to 
Indian philosophy for existential reasons, you know, to try to adopt and follow some of the practices, as you said, um, Tantra or, you know, the mystic philosophies, even going to looking at yoga, which has obviously taken off quite a bit over the last 30, 40 years. And they obviously see something in that type of philosophical thinking that brings out a, a good mental well-being away from a busy work schedule. Mm-hmm. Even at that, you have quite a wide reach in terms of what India is. Maybe people see India as a place whereby they have a deep philosophical roots and perhaps something in which they can look inward. And it's a, it's ironic to say that Indian people are looking to find out who India, what India is and who they are in terms of cultural identity. Yes, I think uh, part of the problem is always the inherent human behavior, which is, you know, grass is greener on the other side. <laughs> so what happens to Indians is that they look at these Western ideals uh, in their starting ages and they find it that very, you know, amazing. Uh, especially since the West is so prosperous, right, compared to a little bit more poor country like India. So in that journey, they start going to the West and then they kind to a, they have what I called as an identity crisis most of the time when they try to integrate with the Western society. And that is the moment where I see a lot of Indians coming back to understand what is their real identity. And that is how they get back and start uh, relating with the Indian culture. Now, coming to the Western uh, people being uh, trying to understand Indian, I think although yoga and other things have been very popular, I I still have a feeling that it is a little bit hard for someone who has been completely foreign to this culture or civilization to just study yoga by books or anything and you know understand it. If yeah, if I have to understand the way of life of a Englishman in British Britain. I have to live that life. It's very hard to do it otherwise and understand it. You know, words do not communicate everything. You have to, there is a relation. Uh, that's why I love uh, Ludwig Wettingston's book. It really explains what are the limitations of language sometimes. Like even as you were saying, there are some people that come to mind who integrated into Indian society or culture to try to find themselves really would be Steve Jobs and the Beatles, who that's who I say. I think even Einstein or Charlie Chaplin also paid visits as well. Right. Absolutely. You're right. Uh, uh, I think uh, it has continued to attract uh, India as a philosophical destination. It's a journey. It's an adventure. This is a very chaotic country, by the way. Uh, only when you're here, you will understand how even stability can still be in a chaotic world. Yeah, I can only imagine what the traffic is like. I don't think you've any traffic lights on the large roads, have you? And you just weave in and out. Right. Can I ask you, if you could time travel, Rakesh, who would you like to meet and what era would you like to go back to? Oh, that's a very hard question uh, because there have been amazing personalities in India. Uh, I think one of the India's most profound uh, golden years was under uh, a kingdom called Gupta kingdom. Gupta. This is called as a golden age of India. Yeah. Uh, And I think that would be a wonderful time. And he had uh, almost nine amazing personalities in his palace uh, every. uh, So in his palace, there was amazing nine personalities. 
one of them was called as uh, kalidasa kalidasa is an amazing poetry guy he's uh, he is world renowned for that sanskrit poet so i think if i would have been that age i would have been able to meet these kind of people uh, i think that would be amazing That'd be fantastic. Rakesh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Any words of advice or wisdom? At least if I, at least from the cryptocurrency and the blockchain, uh, I think one thing we, at, I understand is that we haven't yet seen the real impact of blockchain yet. We are just in the starting of a journey. So I think the real, some of the real fantastic use cases of blockchain are going to get built. Uh, there will be more cryptocurrencies coming up it'll be the world will change in another 10 years it's going to happen and it's it's happening at a very rapid pace as well krikesh i really appreciate talking to you finally getting a chance to speak to you actually and especially having you on the podcast and being a, an early listener and having that interest in economics and i'm so happy that it's working out for you with your company cubrics and if anyone wants to check out uh, Kubrick's they can go to kubrick's.com or either uh, if you want to go to the show notes page on economicrockstar.com forward slash Rakesh or A-K-E-S-H Rakesh thank you so much for joining me on the podcast you are an economic rockstar and I'm so happy to have got the opportunity to talk to you same here uh, Frank it's been an amazing journey I never thought I'll come to this stage and be able to talk to you about even crypto economics <laughs> uh this been a journey with some amazing people just like the way i am meeting you i had the privilege of meeting some of the exciting people i'll continue to keep you updated and uh, uh, you know hopefully when we release cubrics bit more public re- uh, version i'll be happy to update you as well fantastic and i'll definitely be following you anyway rakesh i'll be very interested to see what you do next thank you frank thank you very much Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the Economic Rockstar website. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors. 
at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.